Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to t- turn to Psalm 29. Psalm 29. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. A psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people the Lord will bless his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would humble us before it. I pray that the distractions that we have in our minds, that we would, by the power of the Spirit, put them down so that we might focus on your word. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and that our minds would be set on things above rather than the things of this world. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Eighteen times in eleven verses. Eighteen times the covenant name of the one true living God is repeated in the psalm. Eighteen times in eleven verses. Now you notice that it's the lowercase letters if you're looking at the, or the small caps. If you're looking at it in the New American Standard Bible, sometimes it's translated Jehovah. But this is the covenant name. This is Yahweh. Right? This is God's personal name, if we could um, put it that way. But this is the covenant name that God revealed to his people and to Moses. God's name is in every verse except for the very middle verse, verse 6. It almost goes without saying that the focus of this psalm is Yahweh, it is the Lord. Uh, Through Isaiah, our God declares, I am Yahweh, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. The purpose of this psalm is to do what it exhorts us to do in the first section, verses 1 to 2. We're exhorted to ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. 
And we are called thereby to worship Him. To worship Him. If you, if you have come to know the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know that that is your purpose in life. To worship Him. You don't have to rely upon skin-deep identity politics to give your life importance. You don't have to rely upon your ethnicity to give your life importance. You don't have to rely upon your significant achievements in this life for your life to have purpose. You don't even have to be a victim with a grievance to give your life gravity. The prophet Jeremiah ministered to a people that had gotten all tied up in their victimhood, in their identity politics, away from Yahweh. And he rebukes them with these words. He says, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am Yahweh, who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, says the Lord. Everybody today has their boast. Everybody in all ages has had their boast. Whether it be the color of their skin, the size of their portfolio, the sensitivity of their public service announcements, the greatness of their territory in the middle of the city of Seattle, or maybe the, not the greatness of it. the depth of the education they received at some approved university, the authenticity of their gender expression, the austerity of the symbols of their fallen heroes. Man is distinctly religious, right? And it does not take much time to figure out what a particular individual worships. About what does he boast? His heritage, his wealth, his wisdom, sensitivity, inclusivity. What does he boast about? That's his religion. What is your boast, Christian? What is your boast? Have you been led astray by the boasts of, of the idolaters that surround us on every side? To what do you ascribe value? To what do you give your time and to what, uh, what, what words, what do you talk about? What are the things that come out of your mouth? If you have come to know Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then you know the emptiness of boasting in anything other than in Jesus Christ. In anything other than God Almighty. Even though every person around you may have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the creator, you have gotten back behind all the stuff of the world, ever enticing though, to the source of everything. 
you've come to know God, or rather to be known by him. If that freedom from the complexity of keeping up with the world's passing fads, going from one idol to the next, does not fill you with relief, and I'm afraid your ascribing praise to God will be weak, it will be distracted, it will be unsatisfying to you. If the love of the world and the things of the world still has its hook in you, well then ascribing praise to God is going to be a chore. Sunday mornings will be, uh, But that ought not to be. Ascribing glory to and strength to the one who is all glory and all strength should be our delight. For, for that we should wake up in the morning. For that we should pursue every kind of obedience to commands every day of our lives. For that we should give up our entertainments, you know, for an hour here or there. Worship is the only appropriate response to God's glory. Worship. And as God delights in the praises of his people, it's our duty to name his glories. Right? We find it hard to do this. So often, I have to remind myself when I go to prayer that prayer is not just asking for things. Right? That, that we need. It's not just that. Prayer is also time to... Ascribe to him the glory of his name. In other words, prayer is in a sense unproductive. It will always be wonderfully unproductive for us. It's not merely a means to getting on to your day and a piece of your productivity. Part of prayer is crediting God with glory and strength. Part of prayer is to delight in who God is. That, and, and that is not the same thing as delighting in what God has done for you. Praising God for who He is. Ascribe to Yahweh, O sons of the mighty, the glory due His name. It really is time that we stop I mean, we do this and, and stop thinking of the world in a me-centric way. This, this world is God's. God Almighty is at the center of everything. His providence orders everything that comes to pass. Without Him, there would be nothing. There would be nothing in existence other than Himself. Not a, not a millisecond goes by without God actively superintending and carefully shepherding every millisecond. The power of God is unfathomable. In the presence of the glories of God's creation, right? When we go out into creation, we have a tendency to ascribe glory and strength to it. We step out of our vehicles and go to the edge of the Grand Canyon for the first time. And look out, and what comes out of our mouths? That is incredible. Wow, I can't believe how glorious that is. Why is this not our response to the power and glory of God? The one who precedes those canyons and those mountains that take our breath away. 
the one who has you have hopefully experienced, the one who has poured out his love in your heart through the Holy Spirit. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It is his command that we ascribe to him what he by his perfection deserves. This is your purpose in life. This is it. This is your sole purpose in life and in death and in the life to come. Failure here is to completely miss your purpose. A little diagnostic. When was the last time you went to prayer merely for the purpose of singing God's praises? Merely for that purpose of delighting in who he is and his attributes. I fear we don't do this enough or as we ought because we're distracted by this and that. It truly would, would be more worthy of your time simply to ascribe to God his glory than it would be to certainly watch Tucker Carlson's political commentary. It would be more good for this world for you to understand ascribing praise to God is powerful than it is to understand contemporary political speech. Is our knowledge of God and his power at such a low ebb that we are unimpressed with him? We praise the things we're impressed by. Have you praised God this week? Well, you're, if you didn't, you're unimpressed by God Almighty, the creator of heavens and the earth. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Those seem like the words of some uninformed fanatic. But only if you're unimpressed with God and have forgotten what he has revealed about himself in the word. Think of God's interaction with Moses. Here's what we read of in Exodus. Moses wants not to merely ascribe uh, glory and strength to God, but he wants to see God's glory. Right? And in this, we're taught something about God that we should remember and factor into our praises. Here's how it goes. And Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. To look upon the full glory of God would kill a person. 
The glory of God obliterates that which is impure. And yet we've been brought near by the blood of his son. That should fill us with praise. That should fill us with with, uh, stupendous praise. With a proper view of God shaped by the revelation of himself in scripture, we should always be ready to worship and praise him. Think of Isaiah. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. All the disciples, you know, they looked upon the glory of God as well. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is the very reason that we have breath. It's the very reason we have immortal souls. It is to worship God by ascribing to him glory and strength do his name. You must come to understand this as your first pursuit. This is the first thing you have to do. Men, this is the first thing you have to do before you provide for your families. This is first. Women, before you care for everybody around you and mother the world, you must ascribe praise and strength to God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you will find it it is the most satisfying pursuit. We we are to join with the angels of heaven who continually fall on their faces and cry out around the throne of God Almighty, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. They continually cry that out before God. God never tires of hearing it, and they never tire of saying it. The second section of this psalm has a word that is repeated seven times. It's a little Hebrew word, kol. It appears it is translated many different ways in our Bibles. It can be translated voice, as we have it here. Also noise, sound, thunder, even proclamation. Um, What we have in this section is a rehearsal of those things in nature which invite us to consider God's power. We are made to think of the rumbling waters over the Niagara, the shocking power of, of thunder, the shattering of trees in the wind, right? The whooshing of, of the flames of a huge bonfire. 
that sucks the oxygen out of the air. The resonating depths of an earthquake. The voice of the Lord is like those things. Astonishingly powerful. It is, it's very hard to conceive of things more powerful merely by their sound and their destruction than the forces of nature. Right? We, we see it. We are in awe of the forces of nature. What is, so what is the point of making this analogy? What is the point of all this? The point is, of this description is to ascribe strength to God's name, to do what is exhorted in this first section. And specifically it does so by describing God's voice as a storm. It's a storm. The storm begins over the waters. It increases in thunder, verse 3. It brings winds that break uh, apart the cedars of Lebanon, verse 5. It blasts out lightnings, verse 7. It makes the forest swirl, verse 8. Moves from Lebanon and Syrian in the far north down to Kadesh in the far south. It disturbs and distresses the animals of the forest, even making deers to calve. It strips the forest bare. The image is of all-encompassing power. When a storm like that runs through our area, we all give it our attention. There's no way you can't give a powerful storm your attention. You're forced to. When that hailstorm went through a few weeks ago, we stood out on our front porch in awe of the noise, just the noise that that was making as it teared apart all the roofs in our neighborhood. There was no way to ignore it. The, the thunder, the lightning, the deafening roar of the hail. It was awe-inspiring. As such, it should be a reminder of the power of God. One who directs the path of that storm, who sends forth his lightnings from his storehouse. Calvin, in his commentary on this psalm at this point, says, We have said that this language is chiefly directed to those who with stubborn recklessness cast from them as far as they can all thought of God. These words are meant for somebody who's like cast thoughts of God away, who's gotten lazy in his worship, who, who hasn't given almighty God attention. But the passage is not just saying that storms should remind us of God. Rather, it's teaching us that God speaks like a storm. God's voice is like a storm. God's voice is powerful. The king of kings, Spurgeon says, speaks like a king. As when a lion roars, all the beasts of the forest are still, so is the earth hushed while Jehovah thunders marvelously. When the people of God saw Moses ascend the mountain of God, you remember this? They saw lightning and thunder, and they heard the sound of trumpets. And after God speaks the Ten Commandments, we read this. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. For God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. Don't fear, just fear. 
every day. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Think of the, think of the courage that Moses would have had to have in that moment, walking into the cloud, going into the presence of God, when everybody else had been told to keep a distance. In the book of Deuteronomy, we learn that that reaction to fear God, to fear God's speech particularly, was right. It was appropriate. You said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet He lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. So God says, it is good that they're scared of me and my voice. God's voice was like a storm. There was nothing gentle about it, which is to say that God is a king and a judge. He is not a Christian counselor. He is not a psychologist. He does not flatter with his speech. He does not pander with his speech. He does not put people to sleep ever when he's speaking. No, when God speaks, he does so as the one singular power of the entire universe. He does so as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He speaks always without apology. He does not take back what he has said and then make excuses. To him who rides upon the highest heavens which are from ancient times, behold, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice. A mighty voice. Does God still speak with an audible voice? as he did with the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai? Well, the answer is no and yes. Let's return to that scene at the foot of Mount Sinai. The writer of Hebrews explains it in chapter 12. He says in chapter 12, For you have not come to a mountain. For you, you Hebrews, right, you believers, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. 
And then we're like, okay, so we're not at Mount Sinai, we're at Mount Zion, these are good things, you know, he's given us this, we're not, it's not scary like it was at the mountain, but we've come into the, you know, church of the fourth throne, and then he says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promising, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for Our God is a consuming fire. God speaks to us from heaven and not from a smoking mountain as he did in the past. And he speaks to us from heaven by what means? That is answered in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, even with smoking mountains and trumpets and the voice, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. Has spoken to us in his Son. He is the Word of God, and we have the word in scripturated written down for us God still speaks today if he did not who would be saved who would be saved how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed how will they believe in him whom they have not heard and how will they hear without a preacher what How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. We have the word of God today. We have the word of God today, yet we don't think very much about it. We have so many voices talking into our heads. What's the voice of the one who is preaching? It's just another voice, the guy who preaches to us. But that is not at all what we should believe. It seems awkward, though, to say that God thunders from heaven through the preaching of his word in his churches. Why does that seem awkward to us? Because we don't think of preaching that way. We don't think of, and preachers can't talk about it because it seems so self-serving. Right? We don't think of preaching as God speaking to us by means of this dude we really don't like who has, has terrible weaknesses, who sins, and who doesn't measure up to your wife's expectations. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Preaching and Preachers, says this, a new idea has crept in with, with regard to preaching, and it has taken various forms. The most significant one was that people began to talk about the address in the service instead of the sermon. That in itself was indicative of a subtle change in address. No longer the sermon, but an address of perhaps 
or perhaps even a lecture. There was a man in the USA who published a series of books under the significant title of Quiet Talks. Quiet Talks, you see, as against the ranting of the preachers. Quiet Talks on Prayer, Quiet Talks on Power, etc. In other words, the very title announces that a man is not going to preach. Preaching, of course, is something carnal lacking in spirituality. What is needed is a chat. Right, a, a fireside chat. A quiet talks. Dialogue. So on. Do you know that God used to thunder in the pulpits of this nation? Do you know that God used to thunder in the pulpits of this nation? Sermons used to crash out of pulpits and leave the church trembling. Take this example from Take this example from the 18th century. Why should God be looked upon as obliged to bestow salvation on you when you have been so ungrateful for the mercies he has bestowed upon you already? God has tried you with a great deal of kindness and he never has sincerely been thanked by you for any of it. God has watched over you, he has preserved you, he's provided for you, he's followed you with mercy all your days and yet you've continued sinning against him. He has given you food and raiment but you have improved both in the service of sin. He has preserved you while you slept but when you arose it was to return to the old trade of sinning. God, notwithstanding this ingratitude, has continued his mercy, but still kindness has never won your heart or brought you to a more grateful behavior toward him. It may be you have received many remarkable mercies, recovered from sickness, preserved your life when exposed by accidents, when if you had died, you would have gone directly to hell. But you never had any true thankfulness for any of those mercies. God has kept you out of hell and continued your day of grace and the offers of salvation for a long time while you did not regard your own salvation so much as in secret to ask God for it. And now God has greatly added to his mercy to you by giving you the strivings of his spirit whereby a most precious opportunity for your salvation is in your hands. But what thanks has God received for it? What kind of returns have you made for all of his kindness? As God has multiplied mercies, so have you multiplied provocations. And yet now are you ready to quarrel for mercy and to find fault with God, not only that he does not bestow more mercy, but to contend with him because he does not bestow infinite mercy upon you, heaven with all it contains, and even himself for your eternal portion. What idea have you of yourself that you think God is obliged to do so much for you, though you treat him ever so ungratefully for his kindness, wherewith you have been followed all the days of your life? Now, who preached that sermon? You know who it is, Chuck. Take a guess. Yes, of course. And just the title. The title is The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners. Have you ever, in the PCA 
or in the SBC or in any denomination, in this pulpit, have you ever heard of a a sermon title like that, let alone a sermon as aggressive as that? You haven't. I've failed. We just don't hear preaching like that today. We don't hear preaching like that from this pulpit. We, we have to pray that we have a proper understanding and respect for the preached word, that it returns to the church today. Why? Because God has dis- determined to spread the good news by this means, by the means of the word preached. If the word of God preached is never wounding you, if it's never challenging you, if it's never smacking you around and punching you in the face, then it bears no resemblance to the storm of God's voice. Are we going to cancel pastors because they don't tickle ears and give people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear? In verse 9, the picture of the result of the storm of God's voice is that in his temple everything says glory. Glory! Like seeing the Grand Canyon, like hearing the audible voice of God, like reading the inscripturated word, like hearing preaching that comes in season and out of season, our reaction properly should be glory! It's improper, it's weak, it's wholly inappropriate to come away from the Word of God yawning and unimpressed and uninspired. That's wholly inappropriate. Psalm ends with a statement about God's authority, as it should. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. God as judge sat as king superintending the destruction of sinful mankind, save Noah and his family, who only found favor in his sight. Yahweh is the king forever, and every knee will bow, will be made to bow at the foot of his throne. There will be no escaping his all-knowing gaze, and from there every man will either go to his right or to his left, with the sheep or with the goats. God is, is glorious. God's voice shatters everything like a storm. God's authority is unlimited. And one day we will see it make everything right. Verse 11, he works for you. That almighty God whose voice is like a storm, who makes no apologies for anything he has ever done, who has always worked in perfection, who upholds the universe by the power of his strength, works for you. He works for you. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. It is those who fear the Lord in this life who fear to dishonor him and fear his rod of discipline who will one day know peace. Those who have no fear of God now will eternally be terrified by God's wrathful presence and will not know even the hope of rest or peace ever. If such a sentiment offends you, 
You have manufactured a God of your own sensibilities. But if it delights you, you're not mean. You're not mean. You are rightly giving glory to the one who will be glorified in the damnation of those who hated his son. God loves his son. What would we expect God would do with those who disrespect his son, Jesus Christ? Let me leave you with this thought from from Delich. Thought it was helpful. The closing word with peace is like a rainbow arch across the psalm. The beginning of the psalm shows us heaven open, while its close shows us his victorious people upon earth, blessed with peace in the midst of the terrible utterance of his wrath. Gloria in excelsis is the beginning and in terra pax the close. Glory to God is the opening and peace on earth is the close. Beautiful way of putting it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. We ascribe to you the glory that is due to your name. You you have always been. You are eternal. You are glorious. You are are, uh, the first. You are the last, the alpha, the omega. Father, there is no one that teaches you. There is no one who accuses you justly. There is no one... There is no one like you, O Lord. We're in awe of the fact that that by a word without using hands or tools or machines that you were able to create the worlds and the stars and the nebula and the distant galaxies. Father, we are in awe of your power in converting sinners to you. Those who are, have no thought of you, those who are engaged in hostile thoughts towards you, who hate you, Father, you have, like us, you have subdued and drawn to yourself. Father, we thank you for those times when you spoke to us from heaven through your word. Those times when it was as if the veil was opened to heaven and we were able to gaze upon your face. We thank you for that. Father, we thank you for the power of Jesus, the the glory of Jesus Christ in his submission to you, that he has always been the son and you have always been his father, and that he he did the work of redeeming. He, He was humbled 
and went to the cross, died on a tree for our sins, bore your wrath upon his shoulders, all the while not being esteemed by men, not being liked. And yet now, Father, he's ascended and he sits to your right hand and he will return and his return will not be humble. His return will leave wreckage everywhere because he will dash the nations with the sword that comes from his mouth. The voice of Jesus Christ will thunder through the world and destroy the nations. And Father, we thank you that at the end of that judgment, when we have been acquitted, when we have been acquitted because we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, Father, that we will feast and rejoice and be at peace in your eternal kingdom. Having you wipe even our tears away, having you remove all the pain, the accumulated pain of life in a fallen world, you will remove. Father, we worship you. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you that we know you we thank you that you have opened our eyes to know you. And we thank you that we have hope. Hope of a glorious future. In your presence, always and eternally ascribing the glory that's due your name. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.